You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And I'm your co-host, Prashant Parmeswaran from Washington, D.C. How's it going today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing, Ankit? Doing well, doing well. Uh, so this week, Prashant, let's uh, swing over a bit to South Asia and uh, talk a bit about recent developments in Indian defense. Um, we've we've covered this topic quite a bit on this podcast before. There's always quite a bit to talk about when it comes to India and defense policy, defense procurement, defense relationships uh, across Asia and outside Asia with the United States and Russia. Um, but I think this time we can maybe talk a bit more about nuclear issues. Um, there have been a few developments recently um, that I think merit further discussion. Um, so India's nuclear triad has given us a couple interesting stories, uh, two legs of the triad, the land and the sea leg. Um, on the land leg, we have the fifth pre-induction test, or sorry, the fifth test overall of the Agni-5 uh, intermediate range ballistic missile. We can talk a bit about the range of that missile and whether it's actually an ICBM in disguise, as certain um, analysts in China think. Um, so, uh, you know, I do want to discuss what the role of this mission is, um, of this missile is, because it is uh, probably going to enter service either later this year or next year after one more test. Um, but then we can uh, maybe talk a bit about the uh, fate of the um, INS Arihant, India's first ballistic missile submarine uh, with nuclear propulsion, an SSBN, uh, that I think somewhat remarkably uh, we saw reports earlier this month that the Arihant has actually been out of commission for 10 months. Um, and that's uh, a worrying sign and um, tells us quite a bit, I think, about the status of uh, India's SSBN program and its its triad ambitions overall. Um, so how does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. Cool. So where should we begin? Yeah, let's let's maybe start with the Arihant and then we can move from there. Okay, I think that's the more exciting one, so it makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah, so what about the Arihant? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think you, you summed it up uh, well, which is that, you know, we, we've seen... Over the years, as India has built up its its military capabilities, a, a series of events, whether it's you know accidents, mishaps, in addition to things you know going behind schedule, um, and and the case of the Arihant, um, as you correctly pointed out, given that it's part of India's nuclear triad, given you know the billions of dollars of investment that have that have gone into it, given the high visibility that Indian defense officials and, and Indian officials in general have, have given uh, the capability. Um, it, it, it's really an embarrassment uh, if, if these reports are, are as true as they're made out to be in, in, in the Hindu newspaper, which really went through in significant detail what exactly was behind this and quoted um, unnamed uh, military sources in India uh, talking about the extent to which uh, this, this was occurring. I also think, uh, you know, the, the, the big question um, among observers will be at a time when you see Indian officials sort of uh, playing up India's capabilities, not only with respect to Pakistan, but with respect to China and, and, and sort of positioning India as this rising Asian power, you know, to what extent does this raise fundamental concerns about the state of Indian military readiness to confront these threats and challenges? And I know you know you've you've written uh, a piece about this as well as you know the implications for that. Um, so yeah, maybe you can offer some thoughts about uh, the extent to which this has real implications for for how India actually uh, confronts some of its you know rivals or adversaries in the region. 
Yeah, so, I mean, first, I think it's good to probably uh, talk about what the actual um, issue is with the Arihant. Um, So, as you pointed out, there was a report in The Hindu, a respected Indian newspaper, um, effectively saying that the uh, Arihant, uh, INS Arihant, the the lead ship of the Arihant class of indigenously designed Indian um, SSBNs, um, the third leg of India's nuclear triad, uh, suffered major damage um, and has been out of commission for at least nine months, probably 10. Um, and there's several issues here. I mean, first of all, Arihant, um, I mean, you noted that Arihant is a visible system. I mean, yes, it has gotten a lot of discussion as the third leg of India's triad. But I think it's worth noting just uh, that the Indian government exercises an extreme degree of secrecy when it comes to this program. In fact, we didn't actually ever receive any official confirmation that the Arihant itself had been commissioned. Um, that also came via third-party reports um, and a little bit of open-source verification of the submarine undergoing operations. Uh, The vessel itself was launched um, a few years ago. Uh, It was commissioned in August 2016 after a test in March 2016 of the K-4 SLBM, the primary uh, strategic armament on this SSBN. Um, But the story in the Hindu uh, is interesting. So the reasoning behind why the Arihant went out of service and has been undergoing repairs at port is because it um, apparently it is due to human error. Uh, human error with India's um, one of the crown jewels in India's sort of strategic nuclear forces, uh, the first nuclear submarine. And again, it's unclear how the Indian government uh, is conceiving of uh, or how it conceives of the role of this specific submarine, which is the first of its class. India might end up with anywhere between three and six SSBNs. The second, actually, INS Arigat was just inaugurated, uh, or sorry, launched in November 2017. Our colleague Franz wrote about that um, back then. Um, So they will have additional SSBN. So it's unclear to me of this. The initial ship is primarily intended as a training vessel for Indian sailors and submariners to get uh, a few hours in of experience patrolling the Indian Ocean in this submarine. Ultimately, that experience will be disseminated to the successor ships in this class. But still, this is quite bad. Uh, It's a human error that led to a hatch being left open on the rear side of the submarine by mistake, which led to water rushing in and causing damage, um, including potentially to the to the ship's reactor. Um, And I will say because of the secrecy associated with this program, um, you know, I this might not be the case, you know, something else might have happened. And this isn't to impugn the uh, the reporting of the Hindu or anything like that. It's just simply a difficult uh, issue to report on accurately, the status of a country's SSBN force. Um, But clearly something is up with the Arihant. And actually, I think one of the more interesting things that concerns me uh, personally uh, with this whole episode is the fact that the way India's civilian leadership uh, found out about the Arihant's status was during the Doklam standoff, which we've talked about previously on this podcast. Um, so effectively, uh, the Doklam standoff got to a point, um, and we've talked about this before, uh, you know, dispute with China over a piece of disputed land in the Himalayas, claimed by Bhutan, occupied by Chinese forces that India disputes uh, on Bhutan's behalf. Um, but anyways, it got to a point where the civilian leadership sought to have the Arihant on patrol, which I think in itself is an interesting development. Uh, I didn't quite think the Doklam standoff got to that level that it would require uh, advanced nuclear readiness, but apparently it did. And then when they made that request, they found out that the country's only SSBN was out of commission. So that in itself, I think, is really worrying that the civilian liber- leadership would find out that way. Um, but again, you know, if that's true, it's it's concerning. 
Yeah, absolutely, and and I and I think uh, that that's a key caveat uh, to that because as you correctly mentioned, I mean it's very difficult to report in a reliable and and transparent fashion when when so little is known about um, India's capabilities. But you know, nonetheless, I mean, it, uh, I think you noted in in your piece and and France did as well. I mean, this is. You know, we've seen several of these incidents, you know, over the past few years, um, and some of these are, are actually admittedly not human error. Some of these are, are accidents. Uh, some of these are cases where there's poor maintenance or, or operational upkeep of these capabilities. But, you know, it, it does sort of play into the narrative that you sometimes hear um, among some very cynical defense analysts about, you know, it, it doesn't seem like India is able to get its its act together when it comes to the defense realm, and even if you're looking at Indian capabilities building up, you also need to look very carefully at these things like maintenance and 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 what India is actually doing with these capabilities, rather than what it actually has. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I guess I, I guess you know you could count me among some of those cynical analysts. I mean, <laughs> in the piece I wrote, I wasn't particularly complimentary of the Indian Navy's record with its submarine force in recent years, um, and with good reason. I mean, uh, you know, 2013, 2014. Were not particularly good years for the Indian Navy submarine force. INS Sindhurakshak su- suffered a major explosion while sitting in port. Uh, 18 Indian sailors died in the incident. And just a few months later, in February 2014, INS uh, Sinduratna also saw a fire breakout on board, which killed two sailors by suffocation. Um, and all of that ultimately led to the chief of naval staff at the time, Admiral D.K. Joshi, resigning. Mm. Um, and, you know, more recently, I mean, we, you know, we're talking about the Arihant, uh, but uh, INS Chakra, a Russian Akula II class submarine, uh, saw its sonar domes damaged. And this is a ship that India has on lease from Russia. Um, clearly, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not probably the right person to diagnose exactly what is you know, up with the Indian Navy's um, submarine forces, but clearly something's wrong, um, and it's not a new issue. It's been known for a few years now, um, and clearly, I think the Arihant's circumstances will probably lead to some serious introspection in India, um, because I mean, this is uh, you know, if if again this account is accurate, I mean, it is it is really quite disturbing um, for a country that is seeking to operationalize a large SSBN force in the future. Um, it really uh, it really you know merits closer analysis and hopefully they um you know manage to figure out what's up and and fix it soon mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know is there uh, i don't know if there's much more to be said about the arihant right now um i mean i just wanted to you know put this on the radar for listeners um should we move on to the agni yeah sounds good cool um so yeah just a few days ago india tested the agni 5 it's the fifth overall test of this missile uh which has been tested um, four times previously, two times from a test stand, and two other times from a canister-based configuration, once from a transporter erector launcher configuration. Uh, so India carried out the test of this missile from um, Abdul Kalam Island off its eastern coast, um, previously known as Wheeler Island. This missile is thought to have a range of around 5,000 kilometers officially, according to the Indian government, but also according to the U.S. National Air and Space Intelligence Center. Uh, so they, the United States actually considers this missile to be an intermediate-range ballistic missile. They don't call it an intercontinental-range ballistic missile, and there are some questions about the Agni-5's actual status. Indian press reports have been calling it an ICBM, um, and I can understand that to an extent. An ICBM is generally a more prestigious class of missile, and to me it seems like the Agni-5 probably is an ICBM, uh, Chinese analysts, as I hinted at in the introduction to this podcast, consider it to be an ICBM uh, based on 
the payload weight. Uh, currently, the Agni 5 is thought to be configured for a payload weight of 1.5 tons. It could probably use a reduced payload, uh, simply because we know for a fact that India's um, other missiles in the Agni series uh, have much lighter war warheads, um, ranging between 500 uh, half a ton to one ton. Um, so potentially, uh, the Agni 5 probably is an intercontinental range ballistic missile. Yep, absolutely. And and I think, um, you know, the, the distinction between um, intermediate and intercontinental, that distinction is, has been playing out uh, quite a bit because when you see these media accounts coming out, sometimes, um, unfortunately, using these terms interchangeably or, or getting these ranges wrong, I mean, they're important for two reasons. The first is, um, you know, the, the depending on the range that you attribute to them and the payload, um, the the growing uh, sort of assessment uh, over the past few years is the extent to which these missiles can actually reach, you know, all of China, part of China, because part of the Agni series, you know, the first few were meant for, for Pakistan in terms of addressing that threat. But it's perceived to be that, you know, the, these later series of missiles are meant for, for China. And so that is one reason why why the range uh, is important but but the other reason is i mean i i think irrespective of the the scholarly or expert assessments i mean you 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 did see already after, after this launch as we've seen with um previous launches as you pointed out i mean this is this is the fifth test right we saw the last one um back in december um we we saw uh, media accounts uh, coming out from from china uh, state media accounts and and also from pakistan after that uh sort of playing up the extent of the threat right so it, it does make sense irrespective of the scholarly assessment for these countries to to play up uh, the threat because it contributes to this idea that india far from uh, being defensive um, and trying to address these threats is actually upsetting the, the, the stable balance uh, in the region. Um, and I guess one thing that you know, we, we should keep in mind um, as we assess these, these capabilities is you know, there, there's an extent to which um, you, know, you, me, France, and, and some of these other folks of the diplomat, we do diagnose these very carefully with, with, a, with a proper assessment of payload and range, but there's also this sort of perception management that goes on in the media sometimes that um, actually shortchanges some of this, these scholarly or expert assessments too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the range question is interesting. Um, I mean, my personal opinion is that the Agni-5 isn't necessarily destabilizing. It doesn't give India a particularly new capability that it didn't have before. It doesn't really introduce um, the ability to access new targets that might be important for Indian targeting, such as uh, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, major Chinese urban centers. I do agree that this is about deterring China primarily. The Agni-5, to me, seems to be more about um, enhancing India's basing options. Um, one of the limitations with the earlier missiles in the Agni series uh, the Agni-4, by the way, also still hasn't been inducted, but that's going to happen soon as well, probably. Um, but the Agni-3, the Agni-2, um, were they to be used against China, they would have to be launched from near the disputed border with China, where um, they, were, you know, they would potentially be vulnerable to Chinese conventional counterforce strikes in uh, early on in a conflict. Um, so by being able to base the Agni-5 Further south in India, um, I think the Indian strategic establishment sees a serious survivability advantage. And this is a road-launched missile like um, all other Indian missiles. It's a canisterized solid fuel missile again, which means that the warhead and the delivery system are are stored in a pre-mated state. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think we can probably also uh, talk a bit about, you know, India's nuclear doctrine, which we've talked about on this podcast before as well. But, uh, you know, India continues uh, to profess the same doctrine that it unveiled in 2003 and in a draft form in 1999. No first use with a few caveats for biological and chemical weapons use and um, effectively a limited arsenal to meet the ends of credible minimum deterrence. Um, And we've seen a little bit of confusion uh, about these, um, you know, India's... Um, commitment to the idea of credible minimum deterrence. Um, last year, we talked on the podcast about um, Vipin Narang uh, at MIT, you know, had a close reading of the former um, Indian National Security Advisor's memoirs where he gleaned some evidence that India may be considering a more offensive counterforce strategy in the context of Pakistan, which I think puts uh, some of the no first use commitments into further question. There are already caveats to India's no first use posture, but there might be further reason to doubt that. Um, but, you know, more seriously, I mean, the Indians released a joint doctrine last year, um, the first of its kind, and that document uh, initially referred to credible deterrence, right? They didn't include the word minimum, which is important for the future size of the country's nuclear forces. Um, and then what happened is that the Pakistanis uh, last summer also tested the Nasser. They extended the range of the Nasser by 10 kilometers. And immediately after that, the Indians took down the joint doctrine document and they uh, updated it again with credible minimum deterrence. And I think the reason for that was because the Pakistanis, after they tested the Nasser, put out a statement, a press statement on the Nasser. And they said that the, you know, the Nasser test um, strengthens Pakistan's credible deterrence. So the Pakistanis also dropped credible minimum deterrence from their rhetoric. Um, so there is this real you know, tip for tack going on in South Asia. But there's a bit of confusion. The joint doctrine was a pretty sloppy document. I'm not sure it's actually the right source from which to glean any insight into the potential future trajectory of India's um, nuclear posture. But, uh, you know, it's just something to note that's uh, out there. And the joint doctrine also leaves some questions about whether India is potentially, um, whether it's changed the uh, way in which its warheads and delivery systems are managed. Uh, Historically, it used to be uh, that uh, the Defense Research and Development Organization, DRDO, which develops missiles like the Agni system, um, used to, in coordination with the Department of Atomic Energy, manage the country's warheads while the strategic forces command would handle the management of the delivery systems um it's unclear to me if that's actually changed um but certainly you know these developments more so than the specific credibilities conferred on india by missiles like the agni 5 are um you know what are being watched closely i think in both beijing and islamabad um so there is uh you know there are questions and i will note you know i mean on the on the question of credible minimum deterrence versus credible deterrence the press statement that was released after the Agni 5's test um, just uh, a week ago also used credible deterrence. So again, I'm a bit confused about the exact status of where India stands right now, um, but it's just, you know, some of those factors are worth noting. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, it, you know, as we mentioned previously, it, it really is important to pay attention to these terms because they, they often can can take a a life of their own in, in some cases, particularly on, on issues as serious uh, as, as nuclear weapons um, and delivery capabilities. So um, that's definitely something to watch. I would say, you know, the, the other thing that um, you pointed out that, that is important to emphasize to listeners is, you know, there, there's an aspect of, of status and, and reputation to all of this, right? Um, whether we're talking about the, India's nuclear triad or India's nuclear capabilities, um, you know, India is only one of a handful of countries around the world um, that possesses these capabilities. And, and, and if you read the, the Indian uh, media accounts um, on each of these tests or incidents, 
um, at times it often tends to, to play up that status or, or sort of reputation element at the expense of some of the, the more specific uh, characterizations that we're talking about, right? Whether it's payload capabilities or, or things like that. So I, I guess that that's something that we're, we're going to have to, to continue to, to address um, over time because this, this is something that is a, a sort of reputational question as much as it is a capability question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is there is definitely that idea of pride, um, certainly something that's been true with uh, India since 1998 when it first broke out as a nuclear power. I mean, India paid, you know, reputational costs for that on the international stage. You know, it endured sanctions. It's been the diplomatic effort in India has been very different from sort of the technological effort um, and the military effort to build up the nuclear forces. India's tried to, you know, have its cake and eat it. So there is a deep perception of injustice in India uh, at the idea that the country was not admitted to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as a recognized nuclear weapon state because it tested its weapons too late. Um, so there is a, this idea that it is unjust fundamentally for a country of India's status on the world stage to not be recognized. And, you know, India has been putting in quite a bit of effort to enter the sort of potpourri of non-proliferation arrangements. In fact, just in the few um, recent weeks and months, it's gained, uh, it's acceded to the Wassenaar arrangement on export controls and the Australia group, um, adding to its membership in MITGER, the missile technology control regime, um, and ultimately sort of the, uh, the main goal for India right now is to enter the nuclear suppliers group, which China has been obstructing for some while. Um, but, you know, I mean, even apart from the sort of reputational and prestige-driven incentives for India to develop its nuclear forces, um, there is genuine interest in indigenization. Um, mm -hmm. India has long had to fend for itself uh, when it comes to its nuclear forces. Um, this hasn't been true for other defensive platforms. India is the largest importer of weapons in the world. Um, and, you know, we see this kind of play out in other forms, too. I mean, just this January, um, you know, India... Uh, I, I guess we don't know where exactly things stand with this, but uh, India canceled an agreement uh, with uh, Israel's Rafale systems for the acquisition of the Spike anti-tank guided missiles. But Netanyahu was just in New Delhi for a prime ministerial visit, and he says that the deal is back on track. So maybe it's not. But the idea was interesting. I mean, uh, the Defense Research and Development Organization, DRDO, um, basically you know, said that they could come up with something just as good as Spike for much cheaper. Um, so there is this kind of inbuilt idea of um, indigenization, and it is a priority for the current Indian government, especially under the Make in India initiative for Modi. A big idea of that, um, a big priority there is to increase um, indigenous production of defensive platforms. Um, so that's, uh, again, you know, I think a major trend to watch in Indian defense procurement. Yeah, absolutely, and I and I think you know the 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 sort of intersection between um, Indian military modernization and and the domestic political and economic dynamics will will be I think continue to be interesting in in 2018 and 2019 because India is going to be moving towards uh, election mode, um, and and I'm sure that we'll we'll hear uh, some more about the interaction between those two elements as well. So, absolutely. Um, well, I think uh, I think we can leave it there for this week. Sounds good. Great. Um, so, yeah, for listeners, thanks for uh, following along with the podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so on iTunes or Google Play or your provider of choice. And uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't done that yet. It really helps get the word out about the show. Um, we'll be back uh, soon with more. Um, I'll actually be traveling for a week, so it'll be a longer than usual break. Um, but we hope to be back in no later than two weeks' time. Thanks for listening.